going because we pre-recorded this sermon just in case. And uh, do I love the snow? The answer is no. Do I think it's from the devil? Maybe. I don't know. But um, good morning. And my name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team here at Hill City and grateful that you are spending uh, a part of your Sunday here uh, with us. We are in this series um, called First Love, and we're taking 11 weeks to look at uh, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and it's called Ephesians. And so we've been in this now for a few weeks, and uh, we're going to be taking 11 weeks to to really look at, like, what does Paul, um, how does he talk about, like, this story of Jesus, and what does it mean? And he does this really well in the first three chapters, um, where he's really focusing in on this massive story of what it means to be made alive in Christ. And then in chapters four through six, um, we'll see he makes a little transition and moves into more practical uh, ways of how is this actually lived out. And so he's going to continue on on a high level um, today, and um, which is exciting. So here's what I want you to do. Um, I'd love for you to take out some notes, something to take notes on, uh, whether that's your Bible, um, your literal Bible, or maybe you're doing it on a phone or tablet or just a journal or something. I think we, I was thinking last week, as I was standing up there preaching, I was like, man, I, you know, it's a good practice to take notes. And so, um, because I, here's what I know, every single Sunday, um, you know, God's like trying to speak things uh, into our hearts and he, he's trying to do it every day. Um, but it's always good to be able to write things down. And sometimes it might just be one thing, you know, but it's good to remember those things because if you're like me, it's easy to forget. And so um, get ready to take some notes. Um, as a review, last week, one of the things that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he said he was made alive in Christ, um, one of the other things that I thought was so important to highlight because it reshapes our perspective was he said this, Paul wrote that, that we are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, and united with Christ now. And I know that feels odd because you think, well, what do you mean now? Is it, is it like literally now? And Paul's like, literally now. Is it, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but what he's doing, he's trying to reshape our entire identity to begin to understand that, hey, there's a now and there's a not yet, right? There's a future hope, a confident hope that we have in Jesus that um, has eternal ramifications, but what it does is it reshapes uh, the present. And so think about it this way. If you started viewing your life in such a way where you were like, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm, I'm raised with Christ, seated with Christ, united with Christ, it begins to change everything. And so that's what Paul is trying to do. And then I want to highlight the two words that we've been talking about each week. And that's these two words here, uh, revelation and reconciliation. Revelation and reconciliation. Um, we're going to see each uh, week here that in some way, Paul talks about revealing something and then bringing something together. And it happens every single passage because those are two very important terms uh, for Paul here. And so as I began to think about this idea of revelation and reconciliation, being made alive in Christ and how these things are coming together, it really does start to shape what your life is actually about. And when you think about your life, um, you know, for me, uh, I have the honor to do funerals sometimes. And, um, you know, it can be a somber moment. And uh, what I, but what I always find interesting about those moments is when, um, when we're in the funeral, you start talking about what that person's life was actually about. It's pretty powerful. And it's such a sacred moment to have. And then uh, eventually, you know, you can go see their gravesite, you know, later on. And there's a tombstone there. And I started thinking about pe things that people write on tombstones. And so um, I was like, all right, are there funny tombstones out there too? And instead of just meaningful ones. And so here are a few uh, to look at. Here's this first one here um, from Mel Blanc, who did, um, he was the voice for like Bugs Bunny and several other characters on his tombstone. It just says, that's all, folks. And, um, and then there's another one, Merv uh, Griffin, who was 
a um, he's on TV and he says, uh, and his tombstone says, I will not be right back after this message. And uh, then this last one, I cleared this one with uh, the women on our staff um, before I did it um, because I thought it was funny, but I didn't know if it was appropriate. And so this one, you probably can't see it, but right on the bottom right hand corner of the tombstone, it says this, um, if you can read this, you are standing on my boobs. And so um, just a funny little tombstone thing there. And, um, but here's why I really started thinking about the tombstone. Um, we sing this song um, called Death Was Arrested. It's been around for a few years now. And we were actually at a conference where uh, the band that played that song um, was, was, um, was playing it for the first time uh, live. And they're telling the story about how it became how it came about, the words uh, of the song. And um, it was this one guy was was going through a tombstone and through a cemetery and he came up on this tombstone, this guy named Samuel Burr. And um, and it said that uh, his death, uh, death arrested his progress on April 2nd, 1831. And that from that point, I said some stuff about his faith and how much he loved Jesus. And the guy that was looking at this tombstone, he was like processing this phrase of like that death arrested his progress. And so he went back to his other uh, bandmates and they started talking about you know, this phrasing and um, they started having this bigger conversation and, uh, and they said this, you know, what actually happened on that day was that Jesus arrested death for Samuel on April 2nd, 1831. And so this idea that our salvation isn't just about a conversion moment, isn't just about a decision um, or a one-time event. It's, it's a, and, and yes, it is a process, but it's a complete transformation uh, for us and has eternal um, uh, ramifications in the midst of all of this. And so Paul's pointing to all of this as like, man, this whole story is such a big deal. It's such a big deal. And, and so I wrote this down this week that I thought could be helpful. It says, the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus allows people to discover real life, have confident hope in the age to come, create a unified multi-ethnic community, and establishes that the kingdom of God has complete authority over sin and all beings in the heavenly realms. I feel like that's kind of a big deal, right? And so that's what Paul's been doing so far in these first couple of chapters. And then we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 3. So if you could go there uh, with me, we'll start right there in verse 1. And it says this, for this reason, for this reason. Now, I'm going to stop there uh, because whenever we approach something like this in Scripture, I'm like, well, why is Paul saying this? It's like, for what reason? Like, what's the reason? And he's referring to everything that he has talked about so far in the first two chapters. But I want to scroll down here to um, the chapter that how chapter two ended because we didn't talk about this part last week. But Paul has been talking about how big this story is and what it means to be made alive in Christ and and reshapes our identity. And in chapter two, he says this, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And so we started seeing like, whoa, here's this reconciling um, message again from, from Paul. He's like, man, we're all coming together. Uh, we're no longer foreigners from each other. We're no longer strangers to each other, but we are fellow citizens, Jew and Gentile coming together, that we are God's people. And then when he says we're also members of his household, he's saying, God is near to us. And it's this huge message, right? So he's saying God's near to us. And it says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as a chief cornerstone. So cornerstone is just simply the first um, block that's laid for the start of the building. And so he's like, man, Jesus is the cornerstone. And so he's building everything off of this. All right. So this whole thing is being built. He says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, 
You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, I want to concentrate on that for a second because when Paul says, for this reason, he's referring to this part where he's like, hey, listen, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. We're, we're brought together. And God's been building something up. And he's building up um, this temple, this holy temple. And the temple was always representative of God's presence. Um, and so for a Jew to hear something about the temple, they're like, whoa, whoa, this is the presence of God. This is something specific set apart for God's people. And then to a Gentile or to a Roman person that would be hearing this, I mean, actually really anyone in, that, in the ancient cultures, whenever a temple was built, a temple was a sign that your God beat the other gods. And so during war, what ended up happening, if one empire overcame another one, they would build a temple because it was saying like, our God's greater than your God. And so what Paul is saying here is, is so crazy and it's so, it's such a big deal. And we can gloss over stuff like this so easily in the Bible, but he's saying, hey, listen, what God has been built through, what God is building through Jesus as this cornerstone um, piece, he's building everyone who follows him into this holy temple. And so rather than being just this one temple, it's like there are all these like billions of temples around that, that proclaim. So as, as faithful followers of Jesus and then as the church as a whole, it's like, whoa, we are like God's holy temple. And so it has this huge, huge message, right? That's why he says, for this reason. So let's go back up there to verse one. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, uh, of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace, right? We talked so much about that last week, that he gave me for you. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly, briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So he's like, hey, by your ability to hear this word, to read scripture, to read this letter, um, even for us now, that's what it means, like that we're able to begin to understand some insight through the spirit of God working through this into the mystery of Christ. He continues on in verse five. He says, this was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his uh, holy apostles and the prophets by the spirit. The Gentiles, this is huge, you guys. Like when when Paul goes to this piece and he brings the Gentiles and Jews together, this is massive, 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 massive. It's hard to even, it's hard to even describe how big this is. Whatever the biggest divide between groupings of people you can think of, simply because of race or ethnicity or whatever, um, it, what Paul is saying is like, man. This message is bringing both of these groups together. And he's like, you're now co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. There it is again, that was given to me by the working of his power. Verse eight, he continues, says, this grace was given to me the least of all the saints. And so Paul's describing, hey, like this is who I am. I'm not some... I'm, I, listen, I'm not bringing much to the table here. I'm the least of all the saints to proclaim the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known, look at this, through the church to the, <laughs> this is crazy, and we'll talk about this in a second, through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. He continues on He's in verse 11. He says, This is according to the eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus through our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 
So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Now, again, those afflictions are, he's talking about being in prison. And so, um, but he's saying like, no, these are, this is for your glory. And so it's an interesting way for Paul to begin to phrase this and for them to begin to understand that. And we'll unpack that in a second as well. So what do you want to see? Well, there's only two things that I, I just want you to have um, this morning. And here's, here's the first thing. Uh, number one, the church is essential. The church is essential. Um, you cannot get away from this in scripture. Uh, yes, to being with friends and, and having like a small grouping of friends and all that stuff. Like, yeah, to all those things that can enrich your faith. And, and I'm, I'm wholeheartedly in. But what Paul is saying is that the church in and of itself is essential. Like you, there's so much that goes into this message about the church. And so even in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that we should not neglect meeting together. And so the church becomes important. Uh, The gathering of people becomes important. Yes, the gathering of the large grouping of people becomes important. What we do on Sundays, it is important. Um, is it the be-all, end-all? No. Like smaller groups are great, and our discipleship stuff that we do is great, and community groups, those are all great. Those are all part of the church. But he's saying that you cannot neglect gathering together. It's, it is pivotal to your faith. It's pivotal to understanding that if you neglect gathering together, you are eliminating a huge piece of what what Paul says here, it means to follow Jesus. And so, um, so this begins to speak until I'm, all right, so if Hill City is my home church, then gathering and making it a priority um, is important. Um, if Hill City is my home church, then being a part of the discipleship tracks and being a part of the community, it is important. We cannot neglect uh, to be together. And here's what ends up happening that what Paul says is, is massive. He said, you know, when I, when I paused there and talked about the heavenly realms piece, um, and, I, and I, I, was, I wanted to highlight that. It's in verse 10. I want to highlight that because, again, sometimes we can gloss over some things that Paul is saying. So far in every little section of Ephesians, he keeps referencing things like the powers and principalities, the heavenly realms. And we talked a lot about this in the first two weeks where we're looking at the reality that other things are going on all the time right? Last week, we talked about the devil, the world, and the flesh, and, and how that begins to, to work uh, in our systems in particular, and that there are these heavenly realms, these things, the spiritual element that's going on uh, all around us all the time. And Paul is saying this, that the church is a monument to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. That's what he's saying. Think about this for a second. And this is an easy way for us as Richmonders. Uh, you know, we've we have Monument Avenue, right? And we know all the things that we had with all the monuments um, that were going on over the past couple of years. Um, but here's what monuments essentially are. They are telling some kind of story. And so when a monument goes up, they're trying to tell a story about something. And so I remember uh, last year, someone had asked me, like, what should we do with all the monuments? And I just said, I just wish we didn't do any monuments of people because it always turns out poorly. But anyway, since we had them, here's what they do. They, they tell a story. And so when a monument goes up, it's trying to tell a story. Um, now, you can, you can argue and debate about what story our monuments were trying to tell on Monument Avenue, but I don't think it's that hard to see. And so we're saying that we're trying to tell this story about something. And so what Paul says is like, because monuments have been around forever and statues have been around forever. So what Paul is saying is like, man, here's what the church is. It speaks to the, the rulers and, hev- and principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. 
This is how essential the church is. He's like, the church speaks to all of that. Have you ever thought about church that way? Isn't that crazy? But this is what Paul is saying. It becomes a monument to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Here's what church should do. The church should do is should be a reminder to evil um, that Jesus wins. All right. And so we begin to see that, man, this church then, it isn't just about gathering on a Sunday or just being, you know, having perfect church attendance. It's not about that. That the church speaks into something far greater and far bigger. And when the church is operating like it should, here's what ends up happening. It speaks to the rulers and the, he- and, and the authorities in the heavenly realms. It speaks to the evil that's out there. And it's a reminder that sin was punished on the cross. A lot of times, you know, when we think about Jesus up on that cross, we think, you know, you know might, some people might say like, oh, Jesus, you know, took on the wrath from God or whatever. But, but the reality is that even Paul references this in Ephesians 2. He talks about how sin was punished on that cross. Like sin died on that cross. Like sin lost its power because of Jesus on that cross. And so sin loses its power within us as well then. And so why? Because we are what? We are resurrected with Christ. We're seated with Christ. We're united with Christ. And so we take all that stuff on. And so the church, the people that say they follow Jesus, begin to to have this message come out of it because that's what it's supposed to do. It's not supposed to be, but oh, we're just going to kind of gather in here and keep everything tight. It's like, no, 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 it speaks to something far larger that's going on. This is why, you know, we've said several times that the church, if, if within the systems at play, um, again, we'll just, we'll just use our city because it's just easy. Within the systems at play in our city, um, whether it's economic or political or relational or, you know, um, or religious, whatever. If the systems at play are, all, um, are being impacted by the devil, the world, and the flesh, as we talked about last week, um, at all times, then the church becomes a subversion to all of those systems. That the church becomes a subversion uh, within the empire, right? The church becomes a subversion of whatever system is set up in any country or any place in the world. When the systems are operating in a certain way, they're not operating to follow Jesus. They're not operating to glorify God. They're not operating in that way. And so the church then becomes a subversion to all of those things. And so when you begin to think about it in that way, um, all of a sudden the church, we're like, oh, it is essential. It is a really, really big deal. And a lot of times when I talk about, you know, the church being a subversion to the empire, you immediately go political. And, um, and is that a reality? Yeah, it, it can be. Um, but, but the way um, I think it's important to, to process it is actually bigger than that. Um, let me give you an example. <clears throat> There's a system set up within um, culturally where you have to be busy, where you have to achieve, uh, where you have to compete, where you have to, you know, get to the next level, where you have to do all these things. Um, and, it's, and it's crazy because the system that's set up, you know, kind of in our economic and business, in business um, systems, it's like, this is set up in this way, yet we constantly see families being ruined from it. Um, depression and anxiety is way up. Um, you know, you, you see all these ills coming out of it. I mean, even like simply, even something simple like lack of sleep. I was um, listening to a sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago where the guy was like running through uh, how, um, you know, before there was ever a clock, like how much how much um, sleep people were getting, and and even before the light bulb in the I think it was the late 1800s, um, before the light bulb was invented, people on average got about 11 to 11 and a half hours of sleep a day. 
But when the light bulb became invented, it was like, oh, we can produce more, we can do more, it stays light, you know, in these areas more. And so what ended up happening is like now we live in a world where the average length of sleep is just over six hours. So think about that. Now you might say, well, yeah, but more is getting done. And I'm like, yeah, but are we better for it? So then what does that look like? Well, then the church learns how to be a subversion to all these things. So what does that mean? You're just not in a hurry and you know how to rest. Like that, that kind of lifestyle is a subversion to the empire. And we begin to think about things in a very uh, different way. Um, you can spend less time online. That is a subversion to a system that is at play. I mean, think about it. Uh, it's not rocket science. Like all of the data and all of the research says how bad our screens are for us, right? And, um, and this, is the, like, this is non-Christians like putting this stuff out. And, and so a subversion to this and kind of way of thinking is like, I'm not going to allow my kids to spend a lot of time on screens, right? So you parent in a way that's a subversion to the empire or to the system um, that's happened. Or even myself, I'm like, I'm going to cut down my screen time because I know that doesn't allow me to be present with the people I'm around. And that's a subversion to the way of culture. And so the church ends up living in this way constantly, living, um, living generously uh, for others. That's a subversion, right, when we live in a me-centered uh, society. So those are just some ways that we can be subversive um, as a church. Here's what else happens when you begin to process this, um, which is such, you know, a big deal. Um, when you begin to read scripture, what Paul is saying, like all this reconciling stuff. And again, in Ephesians, all the times he says you, he's replying like y'all. Okay. So um, you can just read it that way if it's easier. But when he's talking about this, he's like, even when we read scripture, um, quite frequently people will read the you statements as like for me. Um, but we have to stop having like a for me mindset when we read scripture. And so when, why? Because we begin to start seeing like, whoa, when Paul's writing to the church, then we start viewing this through like collectively as a community. And there's a, there's a we-ness. There's a y'all to, to how we begin to process our faith. There's the communal way that we begin to engage even scripture within the context of the church. And so even the way we begin to think about the Bible starts shifting. And we start seeing a more communal aspect to it. Paul writes in there, and, and he, he essentially says that, like, um, you know, in order to understand and fully see the wisdom that God has, you need the church. And you need to have this we mindset, communal mindset. And so I wrote it down this way, that we can't understand the fullness of who God is and what it means to be alive in Christ without community. All right? Or you can phrase it, without the church. We can't possibly do it. And so we need the church. The church becomes essential and it, and it allows us to move in a, in a different direction. And so when Paul is reconciling people and he's like, hey, you got to be unified. Well, here's what he's also saying. We can't be unified if we're only concerned with ourselves. And so we need the church. We, we need groupings of people. We can't be unified if we're only with people just like me. See, here's what I, here's what just typically happens. It's like, man, if you don't want to be in a grouping of church folk, um, then what ends up happening is you're probably only with people who are just like you. So even like within the church, every Sunday morning, I just think to myself, man, this is crazy. Like people wouldn't gather like this just in normal life. Like these, there's so many people that are there on a Sunday that would never be in the same room together. Um, come from different backgrounds, different opinions, different skill sets, different mindsets, different, you know, socioeconomic status, everything else. I'm like, man, this, this just wouldn't happen. Even like generationally, I'm like, you just don't see this. And like, so the church becomes so essential uh, for that to get away from just being around people that are only like you. We can't be unified together if we buy into tribal thinking, you know, which is so prevalent in our culture. Because as Paul is saying there in verse six, he's like, 
Man, you Gentiles are, are co-heirs, like your partners. We're in the same body together. And so we begin to think, man, like this is like why the church is such a big deal. It's bringing people together like this. And here's what I know, that the depth, the depth of our faith coincides with how vibrant our curiosity is towards others. And so when we begin to think about it in that manner, it's like, all right, when I think about my church community, like I need to be curious about the people that are there and be in community with them. And then what does that do? It increases uh, the knowledge of the wisdom of God because you see a fuller picture. And what it does is then it connects you in such different ways. When Paul in verse 7 and verse 8, um, I love what he does too, because what ends up happening is when you see the church body as so essential and um, it begins to shift your thinking of your faith and who you are within it. When you read scripture uh, and you have it when it's just about you, or when you think about your faith as it's just about my faith, it's easy to make the story about you. And so what Paul does, and again, it's a subtle little thing he does in verse 7 and 8, he actually says, he's like, hey, like I'm the least of all the saints. Like part of Paul's story is like he wanted all the Christians to die and he was like helping lead the charge to try and kill all of them. And so he's like, man, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm, I'm, I don't deserve any of this. God's just given me such grace to be a part of this and has revealed something to me. And so he ends up just seeing that, man, these relationships are such a gift. It's the grace of God um, working in him. And so rather than... I mean, let me just phrase it this way. Could you imagine if you saw waking up on a Sunday morning or um, if you saw, uh, you know, being part of a community group or uh, serving in, in one of the environments or doing the discipleship tracks, if you saw that as like God's grace on your life, wouldn't you, like it would change. It would change the way we think, like how gracious it is of God to allow me to be a part of a community like this. And so Paul's like, man, this is what it's like. This is what it should be like for churches. Now I know, I know that people come with bad church experiences and church hurt and church trauma and church abuse and all that stuff. And so I know that like, man, not everyone does it well. And I know that there's no perfect church. Hill City is not a perfect church. All right. So, um, I just, but I want us to think about it differently. And I want us to think about how essential it is. I want us to think that, man, this church is like, man, this is the grace of God in my life. Here's the second point, and it's the last point. We fear no evil. We fear no evil. Um, it's so easy to live in fear right now. Uh, I mean, so easy. And people's imaginations are gripped by fear. But man, when Paul writes, he's like, we fear no evil. In verse 12 and verse 13, he talks about this boldness that we have as the Spirit of God begins to work in us, that we have this confident hope in Christ Jesus because we have access to him. Why? Because we are raised with Christ, seated with Christ, unified with Christ. And he's like, man, we are made alive in Christ. And so that gives us a boldness and a confident hope um, of who we are and begins to shift our imagination and our perspective. So fear does not have a hold on us. Fear does not speak into our lives um, like maybe it currently is. Fear starts kind of dissipating because like, hold on a second. I know the bigger message. I know how, um, how the message of Jesus speaks into all of this. And here's why um, Paul is doing this. In verse, when he starts saying in verse one, he says, uh, for Paul, I a prisoner. And later on, he says, like, this is for uh, your glory. Here's the thing. When someone got put in prison back in that culture, um, it was it was shameful. Um, it was uh, it was used as a way for the government to show dominance over someone else. If someone like had some kind of rebellion or whatever, they would throw them in prison. And they would say, like, 
you're not bigger than the Roman Empire. And so you're going to, if you speak against the Roman Empire, we, we put you in prison. And so here's what's so cool about what Paul is doing. You know, he's taken this thing that the empire would use for shame, that the system would use to, to kind of glorify its own power. And he's like, he's like, okay, try and muzzle me by putting me in prison. Go ahead. But here's the thing. We still win. The church is growing. People are coming to know Christ. The gospel is going forth. So it doesn't matter. So Paul is sitting there in prison. He's like, it's for your glory, y'all. Because guess what? We're good, man. The church is growing. People are coming to know Jesus. The gospel and the message of Jesus is moving forth. And they might think, but Paul, you're in prison. He's like, yeah, but guess what? I'm in prison. They think they're somehow going to like, like, totally demolish the church in the movement because I'm one of its leaders and here I am in prison, yet everything is growing. And so it shows that, man, God's kingdom is way bigger, way more powerful, so we don't have to live in fear. And what he's doing in that moment, he's like, man, I'm not fighting, I'm not fighting the empire with politics or I'm not going along kind of toe-to-toe um, with them uh, around the way that they work. I'm coming with Christ. I'm coming the way the Spirit of God works. And guess what? We win. We win. And so he's like, yep, I'm in prison, but it's for your glory. So celebrate I'm in prison because the church is growing. And so what he does in that moment, he begins to reshape our perspective. He can reshape the perspective around fear, reshape the perspective around suffering. So even right now, uh, there are a lot of things that are, you know, awful. And, um, and even recently, I, you know, was, I was in a conversation with someone talking about, you know, um, some other things that are going to be harder for Christians to do because of some laws that might be put in place and all that stuff. And um, it was coming from a fearful standpoint. And um, he goes, what are you going to do as a pastor? And I'm like, I mean, we have the Bible. And when the Bible talks about stuff like this, it's like, God always wins. And um, yeah, it might be harder, but man, guess what? Like, God wins. And it begins to shift the whole entire narrative uh, around this. And so it begins to reshape our perspective. And so we begin to see things uh, very differently. So again, we're, you know, when it comes to suffering, we're adverse to this in the West. And um, a lot of people in this world that go through suffering and pain and hard times, for them, it's not like, it's like, oh, this is just life. And they kind of move on. Um, but typically, you know, we're really adverse to going through suffering and pain. And I'm not saying we should pray for it. I'm not saying we should desire it or anything. Um, but what Paul does, he's like, man, I want to reshape it. You have a boldness. You have a confidence in Christ Jesus. Um, you, this message is, is far bigger than the suffering or pain that um, you are going through. And so Paul reframes the whole thing. He's like, he's going through some hard times. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? God's glory can be revealed in the midst of this. And so he's not saying it's, it's, it isn't painful or just don't worry about it or um, you won't experience any pain. He's just like, hey, don't let it have the last word. And, and so I, I wrote this, I said, suffering won't have the last word unless we allow it to. And so um, if you're going through a tough time right now, um, if you're going through um, what you feel like is the hardest season of life, if you've... Um, gone through trauma or abuse or um, you know, economic struggles and or um, you've lost a loved one recently or you're going through a divorce or you know just like times of just great suffering um, yeah we grieve and we mourn and uh, yes like it has like such an earthly impact on us but our imaginations begin, begin to um, be reshaped uh, and our perspective is different when we put Jesus at the center. Um, because here's what ends up happening. Um, 
we can suffer well. And I know that sounds odd, um, but we can suffer well, meaning we feel all the emotions. We feel all of that. But we suffer well with a confident hope. We suffer well with a trust in Jesus. We suffer well with a boldness and a courage about our faith. We suffer well um, when our hearts are centered on Jesus and we trust in the character of God. And so in the midst of whatever you're going through, um, here's what I know. God won't fail you. He, he will not fail you. And um, you might have been praying for something and didn't get it. You might have been praying for a healing and you didn't get it. You might have been praying for the situation to change and you didn't get it. You might have been praying for your marriage to change and you didn't get it. God will not fail you. And, um, and so it's important for us when you think about the character of God and the goodness of God in the midst of our suffering, it totally reshapes how we begin to process the world around us. Let me close with this. You know, um, if this story, and this is a huge story that Paul's talking about, like huge. If this story of Jesus isn't true, then it's all on us. There ain't a lot of hope in that, all right? And so, but if it is true, man, our imaginations should shift. Our hope begins to shift. Our perspective begins to shift. And we have a confident hope in our present because of an eternal reality that we, we know will someday be um, present for us. And it begins to totally change how we begin to view this life now. And you might be thinking, well, Wags, I'm not there yet. All right, that's okay. Like, that's all right. Um, one of the phrases that we've used a few times um, in our community is just simply like being okay with saying like, I need grace for today. And that might be you today, that you need grace for today. A grace that saves, a grace that will direct us, a grace that comforts us, um, a grace that reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Guys, let me pray for you. God, um, this morning, um, we are thankful for your grace. Um, we're thankful for um, the reality that this whole thing doesn't hinge on us, that because of your great power, because of your death and resurrection, because of the story of Jesus and um, how that speaks into not just our own life, but it speaks into the communal life. It speaks into the church. It speaks to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that this story of Jesus is cosmic. And um, God, that we are a part of this story, that you set the framework and that we begin to live out that story um, by following you. And so God, I just pray right now um, for those that are going through a difficult time and a difficult season, that they would know and trust that you won't fail them, that they would know and trust that um, in your character and in this message that sin and evil do not win, um, that they would know um, the grace that you have for them and the peace that's on the other side of that grace. Um, for others, God, that um, are just trying to figure things out and figure out their faith, I just pray that they would begin to see how incredible this story is and um, how unbelievable it is that we get to be a part of it and that we can be risen with Christ, seated with Christ, um, united with Christ, and that that story becomes our story. Um, we love you, and in your name, amen.